Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Sherman. Dr. Sherman, welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Great to be back, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate all that you do, and I, I see you writing at First Things and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Mortification of Spin on there, and I appreciate all that you do. The, uh, can you, kind of can you uh, just catch us up on what's going on in your life, marriage, ministry, and some of the current ministry projects that you're working on? Well, still married to the same person I was married to four years ago. I was last on uh, my wife, Katrina. We've uh, we've moved. Last time we spoke, I think I was coming to the end of my time at Westminster Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. We've moved west by about three, 350 miles to a place called Slippery Rock in western Pennsylvania, and I teach at a town just north of here, Grove City. Grove City College, which is a liberal arts college, 50 miles north of Pittsburgh. Uh, so yeah, my, my ministry, such as it is, is teaching uh, undergraduates at Grove City College and occasionally filling pulpits in the local area, particularly during the time of COVID, when people are looking for putting on extra services and looking for extra help. I'm, I'm doing a bit of uh, preaching uh, in churches around the area to help uh, uh, cushion some of the blow of the COVID changes. That's, uh, that's wonderful. I love hearing that. And uh... Thank you for your minute. Can you uh, just tell us about your book, the, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution? Why you wrote it, and how you hope it'll be received, please? Uh, well, I wrote it for uh, the book is is really an attempt to get at the question of of how something like transgenderism has come to be plausible in modern society. When you think about it, thirty, forty years ago, if you'd suggested to people that uh, the sentence "I'm a woman trapped in a man's body" made sense, they'd probably have laughed, most people would have laughed in your face. Yet today, it's considered quite plausible. In fact, uh, if, if you deny the plausibility of that statement, you're liable to find yourself accused of, of hate speech, of being a hateful person. I wanted uh, to try to explore how that set of conditions that make that statement plausible came about. So that's the, the reason I wrote it. It's, it's not really a book about transgenderism in many ways. It goes right the way back to the Enlightenment, and I trace uh, sort of West or Western cultural thinking uh, from uh, the early 18th century up to, to the press. So I wrote the book in order to help primarily Christians understand why the world now thinks in these strange and apparently new ways that it does. And I hope uh, it will be received, hopefully it will be received well by the Christian community. Anyway, I, I very much doubt that everybody's going to receive it well. But I hope that Christians in particular find it a helpful book in explaining why things have changed the way they have and why things seem to be changing so rapidly. But things that were unquestioned values, unquestioned goods, just a generation ago, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, why these things are suddenly under such tremendous pressure. It's not a book that provides Christians with too many answers to these issues. That, I think, is uh, is for other more brilliant people than me to articulate. But hopefully it will help uh, Christians. It will reassure them by helping them understand why we're in the situation we're in. I think once you understand that, then it becomes less 
chaotic and anarchic, and and it's easier to start thinking then about how we might respond. Yeah, I, I, that's really good. I remember the first speaking of transgenderism. I remember the first time I encountered you know the transgender bathroom and and those types of things, and even in, I was working as a substitute in Idaho as a paraprofessional, and I remember the first time that I encountered a student who one day before was was a guy, and then the next day she was. Uh, and the parents wanted us to acknowledge that she, and I was like, ah, this is actually yeah. happening. Um, and happening in Idaho, which is not San Francisco. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was just like, wow, you know, I had to really like step back and be like, man, how do I, how do I respond to this? Anything. Yeah. I, I didn't obviously say anything. It wasn't the right place. Oh, my pudding. But I was thinking, I just I just prayed for the girl. I prayed for the parents. I prayed for for the help of the Holy Spirit and for me. I wouldn't say much. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, this kind of brings us, I guess, to the question here. How should Christians speak to the growing tide of trans? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a tough question. I think, the, you know, the whole, you could really sort of absorb that within the whole, how Christians should respond to the, the tide of, of the LBGTQ+, of which transgenderism is is one facet or part. I think the, there are two, there's a twofold answer to that. I think, first of all, I would want to make a, a distinction between individuals I encounter for whom this is the thing with which they're struggling. This is their particular issue as an individual and the movement as a broader political and cultural movement. I, I think the LGBTQ plus movement as a movement needs to be opposed. Uh, I, I think it is uh, subversive, ultimately, of, uh, of social stability uh, on a whole number of levels. More the T and the Q of the LGB, I have to say. You know, when you start dissolving uh, the whole notion of, of maleness and femaleness, when you can effectively become whatever you want to be, that creates a situation where there's no stable notion of the self or the individual. So I think political movements committed to that kind of philosophy are fundamentally destabilizing of society as we know it. So I've got to say on one level, there's a kind of political response for like needs to come. On an individual level, of course, when you're dealing with somebody for whom this is their issue, and perhaps it's an honest and agonizing struggle they're going through. Such people need to be cared for and loved, and that may take different forms in different contexts. Any pastor will say to you, I used to face this in class at the seminary when a student would say, how would you deal with a person struggling with this, this particular issue? I always answer, it's so difficult to give a general answer because every individual has their own history. Every individual has their own context, and part of uh, pastoral care is the ability to spot the uniquenesses in any given case in order to, to handle the situation. So I would say the general point, when you've got somebody in your church or you have your next door neighbor and this is their thing and this is the thing they're struggling with, you want to handle them with, with care and compassion. Uh, but that may look different in, in each circumstance precisely because we're all unique as, as individuals and come with our own individual bag, baggage. So but I do think it's important to make that distinction. If we, if we confuse the political movements and the struggles of the individual, then one of two things happen. Either we treat the individuals as if they're intentionally intending to destroy society as we know it, and we tend to treat them brutally uh, and unlovingly, or we tend to treat the political movement naively. We look at it in, 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 through a sort of sentimental lens. And I think we need to we need to treat the political movement with uh, the cold eye of political realism, and the individual struggling with the the loving eye of pastoral compassion. Well, that, that's really good. I mean, you know, like you're like you're just talking about. We we're not against made in the in the no. likeness of God, but we're against you know the ideology. Yeah. And so we can yeah. 
tell there. I don't buy, but we do it by speaking up and letting them know the truth about, you know, Jesus, Idol says. But yeah, I think that's very true. And, and of course, the, the skill is in your churches where these things bubble up is, is having a kind of culture where somebody would be comfortable coming to their pastor and saying, I'm struggling with this, knowing that their pastor will not, you know, throw them out of the church. But the pastor will be there to, to help appoint them to biblical teaching, give them love and community support as they as they wrestle with how to mortify these things. And I think that's, that's difficult to do in a highly polarized political environment where these are the big political issues today. I think it can be very hard for pastors to, to make the distinction that I've argued for, and yet we have to try to do that. Uh, otherwise, people who who earnestly need help are, are not going to get it. Yeah, that's, that's good. You know, we, we've seen the, the rise of uh, revoice and issues like it within the church. How, how do Christians speak to these types of issues? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard. The, uh, the revoice, I'm not familiar with its latest iterations. I saw it when it was kicking was in when it was kicking off. And part of me, I was worried that those kind of things closed down discussions because there are people. Well, first of all, one wants to affirm any any person who feels these kind of temptations and says, "You know, I'm going to be celibate." We want to affirm and support that. If somebody comes to me and says, "I'm I'm a gay Christian, but I'm celibate," I certainly want to affirm them in their celibacy. Where I would get concerned is in allowing that the gay becomes a legitimate foundational identity for that person. Uh, that would be my big concern about, about revoice. Uh, not so much that it's it's trying to promote celibacy for Christians who, for whom same-sex attraction is their big temptation, but the legitimizing of gay as an identity for Christians. And I'm always I'm almost out of those. I say, I'm not sure I'm very happy about Christians identifying as straight, really, in the sense that I don't think the Bible teaches us that our sexual desires are really our identity. Our identity is as those made in the image of God, as Christians, those who are in Christ. So, really, Revoice is, uh, I think, on the one hand, I do want to affirm some of the things they've said. On the other hand, I want to say, but I think you're going about it the wrong way. What you're doing is you're legitimating something that shouldn't really, really be legitimated. Uh, and and that's what worries me. It's a little bit like, you know, when you're a pastor and, and somebody comes up, you say, you know, a teenager or whatever, and they're dating a girl, and they ask the question, you know, how far can I go with this girl and it's still okay? Any pastor is going to turn around and say, you yeah, know, that's the wrong question to ask. You know, you're already on the wrong track at that point. And I worry with things like Revoice, they're asking the wrong question. They seem to be saying, you know, how far can we go with gay identity and it still be okay? I want to say to them, no, you, you need to revise your whole understanding of, of identity here. Even as I affirm them in what they say about we want to be celibate. Yeah, you should be celibate. As if you want to use the term a straight Christian, you should be celibate outside of the context of marriage as well. So I, I think you're right. You know, it's a matter of understanding our identity in Christ. And it's it then become that a site, right? So we have to help yeah. people and first their union with Christ and the, you know, their doctrine about matter. Yeah. They shape and fill our, our discipleship. And, and, and again, yeah. I appreciate the fact of not saying, oh, that you're not making this a hard and a fast rule, but we're standing against um, the people saying that this is their identity, finding all of their worth and meaning in love. As you know, uh, I grew up in Seattle and I, I had many, many people when I was in college and high school uh, ask me these questions. Uh, yeah. And, uh, oh, is homosexuality okay? You know, you carry around a Bible. So I guess you know the answer to that, right? 
you know, uh, I, I had to quickly, uh, very quickly, um, learn the answer to those questions, wrestle through those things. And, you know, we're only ever going to see this, this particular question. I mean, revoice is this latest, but we're only ever going to see it. And we, we, we don't have to shy. I would just say to people, don't shy away from what the Bible says. Don't shy away from the hard question. The church has answered these things, and we have good answers to them. So don't let that shake your confidence in the truthfulness and the reliability of Scripture. Instead, let it drive you, right? Wrestle with our true interests. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I would add to that as well. It, it also, it's a challenge to the church because so much of what I think is attractive about the LGBTQ plus movement to young people is it provides a community. That, uh, the, there is a genuine community. This comes through very clearly in the writings of Rosaria Butterfield when she reflects on her time uh, in, the, in the LGBTQ uh, world on, on what a tight-knit community it was. And we, we live in a world today where communities are a premium. Traditional communities are breaking down. People are, are all at sea. They're, they're longing to belong. And I think that you know the church should be a place where people can belong. Uh, on the one hand, yes, we do need to press home the, the doctrinal clarity of the church on these issues. But we also need to press home the, the fact that church can be a community where, where people can belong, people can feel they belong. And that's a big part of identity. Our identities are often grounded in the groups to which we feel we belong. And I would love to see the church uh, taking up community with as much vigor as it takes up doctrine on these issues. No, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, if you're if you're in union with Christ, you should be the safe. What you're saying is safest, not only the safest, but sin and sin is right and identity issue. The church, by extension, should be pulled together. And and that is such a significant point because you know we we have the hope of the world. So therefore, you know, the church is, as has been said. I'll, uh, for sinners to come and, and to yep. have their issues addressed with truth from the Word and with Ostean. And so, you know, we have those those answers. Yeah, we're, we're all deeply flawed people. The church, I mean, read read Paul's Corinthian correspondence. Uh, the church there, at one level, is a mess. Uh, but it's still the church. And, and Paul presses on them time and again their identity in Christ. So... Yeah, I think the church church needs to to, to be a community of, of flawed people. We need to understand that's what we are and, and be welcoming to those who uh, who are flawed in different ways. Yeah, that's very good, brother. Well, here's a big question, as if the other ones aren't, but a depressing one. How should Christians speak to the growing social acceptance of pornography? That's a tough one. Um, uh, it, it, it's yeah, I. I I think, yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. I mean, clearly, I, I think pornography brings with it a host of problems. In the book, I talk about this a bit. It's, it's not just that it promotes lust. It promotes uh, objectification of others. Uh, it turns sex into something that is purely about me and not about somebody else. Uh, it's, it's a very pernicious medium because it, it actually preaches a particular view of the world. And we all know, of course, that it is one of the, the biggest scourges within the church at the moment. All the statistics you read would seem to indicate that use of pornography by, by men in the church is, is at fairly high levels. 
and is rising among women. Uh, and so you know, this is, in some ways, a, a pressing pastoral issue, even beyond LGBTQ stuff. Uh, it's, this is something that, that lurks at the, at the door of all of us, if you like. So I think the church needs to, needs to face this head on. I think it's, it's tough because it's, it's not even like, uh, you know, if, you, if somebody's an alcoholic, you can say to them, don't go to a bar, don't buy alcohol. There are places that you can avoid. The problem with pornography is it comes through our computers, it comes through our cell phones. It's almost impossible to live in the modern world without being in the alcoholic's equivalent of a bar with any drink you can want on offer for free. So the world is a kind of nightmare from the perspective of a Christian pastoral care relative to pornography. I think uh, pastors need to, to speak to it from the pulpit. And I think uh, particularly men, but maybe women as well, need to make themselves transparently accountable uh, to others. Uh, when I was a pastor, one of the things I did was I got uh, covenant eyes for my computer, not because I particularly struggle with pornography as an issue, but I felt it enabled me to say to young men in my congregation, you know, I don't trust myself on this stuff. I got this on my computer. My uh, internet activity goes is, is reported to one of my elders so he can keep an eye on what I'm doing. Um, I felt much more comfortable for myself, and I felt I had much more moral authority on this as a pastor, precisely because I'd made myself accountable. So I think clearly we preach on it, but bottom line is most of us know that pornography is wrong anyway, so preaching on it is simply confirming what we know already. Perhaps more important is making ourselves accountable, accountable to others. Yeah. That's that that touches on uh, a number of things that we've already talked about about identity about community. Um, you no, know, I I can say as somebody who is enslaved to pornography that I, I was salt and I was cussing curse. Um, I, I was selfish and I realized later that I was buying this one. And I also hid from accountability, so there was that, um, which, yeah. which is totally the wrong thing to do, which I, I affirm everything that you just said. Um, you know, we, we have to live in the light, and what, what happens is live in a, I tell guys, you live in a perpetual state of false repentance, you know, and you're just going through that cycle again and again and again. You're going to keep drinking from the wrong trough, and you wonder why you feel so bad all the time. I mean, that that's a sign that you should, you should feel bad by looking at it. As you said, you're objectifying women, you know, yeah. uh, men are, you know, and, and vice versa. Well, you know, uh, women are objectifying men and, and on and on that goes, right? Um, I think I think that we have to recapture uh, not only uh, the, how God has designed us, a man as a man and a woman as a woman, but we really, truly, genuinely have to, and I think of this, uh, recapture the, the biblical teaching of repentance and reformers taught about it and and stress. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think so. And, uh, you know, Martin Luther, you know, the, the, the founder of the feast, as far as the Reformation goes, Martin Luther maintained the practice of confessing to another priest all his life, even after he became a reformer, uh, precisely because, well, two reasons. One, uh, he felt it made him accountable. And two, it was good for him to be assured of God's forgiveness by somebody else. You know, there's a sense in which I think you're right. We can con ourselves that we're repenting when we, we you know, we just repent in private. Uh, but we can also con ourselves. Uh, we can we can deny ourselves the riches of the promise of the gospel when we just tell it to ourselves as well. Sometimes it's a delight to our souls to have somebody else declare it to us. 
Uh, and I think Luther was really on to something there. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The recapturing of the holiness of God, the recapturing of true biblical repentance and faith is important. And maybe, you know, the practice of confessing our sins to, to somebody else that we trust, somebody who isn't going to immediately, you know, put it up on Twitter or Instagram, something like that. Somebody we trust, both to listen to us, to rebuke us, and to extend the word of promise to us when appropriate. Uh, that's so good. I, I tell my friends, uh, the close friends, I'm like, you know, they're like, well, you already know the answer in my immediate priority is preaching to, so you go for it. <laughs> you, you can yeah. preach to me, I need it, just because I know it, that means that, right, I should, according to James 1.22, I should be doing, or 1.26, I should be doing it. So clearly there's yeah. some sort of thing that I still need to hear, I need to be reminded of, and that's why it touches on uh, what we talked about earlier about community and, yeah. and, and all that. I was going to say, and I don't, we're not when when the gospel is declared to us, we're not just being reminded of it either. You know, when my wife says to me she loves me, or I say I love her, I'm not simply reminding her of something that uh, that she knows already. I'm also doing something that makes a difference. You know, she's perfectly capable of finding old birthday cards I've given and seeing, you know, I love you written in them by me. But to have it said to her in the press makes a difference. And I think you're saying with the, the proclamation of forgiveness, the declaration of the gospel, it's not just a reminder. It's also being forgiven all over again in a strange way. That's so good. So good. Well, this is a challenging question. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts. How did our burger, our burger fell versus Hodge's decision reveal the changes in our... Yeah, the, this is the 2015 decision on gay marriage. Uh, in some ways, you know, Christians were worried it would change the culture for the worse, and it certainly... You know, granted legal status to changes in our culture. I, I think it spoke eloquently. The reasoning behind Obergefell versus Hodges really lies in, in the idea that every individual has the right to be happy in the way they choose, providing it's not seen to be doing obvious harm to another. It's, you know, Thomas Jefferson's old principle. Uh, I think he was talking about uh, belief in God or belief in many gods. He says, you know, as long as it neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg, it's no interest or importance to me whatsoever. And I think Obergefell versus Hodges indicated we're now in a culture where if somebody wants to be happy in a particular way that isn't seen to be harming somebody else, then that's okay. Uh, and that, of course, is a very reductive view of what it means to be a human being. Uh, it's a very reductive view of us. It means that really, ultimately, we're accountable to nobody but ourselves, and that happiness is primarily a self-centered, self-oriented thing. It's, a, it's almost a psychological state we have. So the, the gay marriage uh, uh, judgment is an interesting one, not simply because it, uh, it, it, uh, because it legalized gay marriage. It didn't legalize gay marriage, of course. It, it gave state recognition to gay marriage. It's a slightly different thing. Uh, it was significant because it gave state recognition or federal recognition to gay marriage, uh, but it was more significant as a symptom of the times that really happiness uh, uh, is is whatever makes you as an individual happy, and public ethics are to be made to conform to that. So in some ways it, it, it reflected the fact that morality now is, is nothing more really than, than individualized sentimentality. Yeah, I think it just goes back, you know, to me, back to, well, you could really take it back even further to the Greco-Roman idea. Hey, you know, you can just find pleasure in whatever you want to do. You know, I'll just do yeah. what I want to be. It's how I feel. And so a pursuit of uh, the pursuit of pleasure is, is kind of our, right? really, that's yeah. the highest yeah. Bible would say of all of because we're made to know God and to have pleasure in Him, and He, uh, the song tells us very clearly that, that He delights over us. Um, Absolutely. 
Yeah. Brother, where can people go to, to find out more about your work online, either on social media or otherwise? Well, I do. Uh, I, I write fairly regularly things on their website. Uh, I also write occasionally at Public Discourse, which is the, uh, the, the online journal of the Witherspoon Institute at Princeton. Um, and I do things for uh, my college, Grove City College, as well. There's actually, at the moment, uh, by the time this podcast is released, they'll all be up. There's a short series of eight brief lectures kind of summarizing my book in many ways called the uh, the triumph of the mob uh, that you can find via the grove city website which is gcc.edu so those are three places to go and, and find stuff that i do wonderful brother i encourage people to check that out for lovely boy um you know there's a lot dr truman that we could talk about about this subject as we wrap up uh, can you give us takeaways yeah, I think that one of the big takeaways of my book is that, that Christians need to realize that when people are talking about sex these days, they're talking about identity. They're not talking about behavior so much as who people are, their most fundamental rabble. And that makes, that makes a big difference for how you address this problem within the church. Secondly, as I alluded to earlier, I think that the answer to this from the church's perspective is not simply right teaching. It can never be less than right teaching. But we also need to realize that identity is formed in community and churches need to be strong, gospel-centered communities. Uh, it's, there is no silver bullet that's going to solve this problem tomorrow or next week or maybe in my lifetime. A strong community, uh, a strong community is a vital part of the solution as we look to the future. Well, brother, I, I so appreciate you and all that you do. This has been just look. I know you said before we recorded that you've been working on it a number of years. So thank you for your labor. Guys, the book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, the Road to Sexual Revolution is well worth the 400 pages uh, of time to read it. It'll help you to understand these things so I can listeners. Thank you, brother, so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed connecting with you again, and I hope that you have a blessed rest of your day. Likewise. Good to speak to you, Dave. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.